0: The number one no in the early days were uh, women's health is a niche market. This is not a big enough market. Um, And so, you know, I I overcame that because uh, I was kind of like, well, sucks that you don't know how to read numbers, but I'll go get this from some other guy because (laughs) there's a lot of money in this market. Um, So that was, I mean, when you have like, when you're armed with facts and what someone says is just something that's wrong, you're kind of
1: like, all right, whatever, next. That's Kate Ryder, the founder and CEO of Maven, the largest women's and family telemedicine network. I'm your host, Patrick McGuinness, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. Right now, a lot of people are asking me whether it's a good time to start a company. Maybe you've lost your job and you need to figure out the path forward, or perhaps you have extra time on your hands and you're dreaming big or even small entrepreneurial dreams. Either way, the idea of coming up with a business that you can build for yourself is an attractive idea, and it's as attractive now as it has ever been. And I believe that it is a good time to start a business, but it's also a complicated time. Think of this. Companies that were the toast of the startup scene just a few months ago, companies like WeWork, Airbnb, and ClassPass, are now struggling for survival as the office, travel, and fitness industries reel. real, and no one quite knows what these industries will look like in the future. Meanwhile, companies like Zoom and Peloton, both of which were at the right place at the right time, are booming, and both have seen their stock prices more than double since early March. It's incredible. In the absence of offices and gyms, this is their time to shine. But being at the right place at the right time is only one way to succeed. And in fact, here's the thing. Most changes in how things are done in a given industry are not tectonic shifts that happen overnight. No, instead they are gradual and you don't need to be lucky to spot them. You need to pay attention, do your homework and build conviction. Sometimes the best ideas are hiding in plain sight. But even if you do come up with that great idea, decide to pursue it and build a compelling case, getting people to take you seriously and more importantly, to provide you with financing can be daunting. My guest today knows exactly what that feels like and she knows what it is to have a billion dollar idea, but to be told no over a hundred different times by investors before eventually raising a round. Kate Ryder is not your conventional founder. She started her career as a journalist at The New Yorker and The Economist, and then with the goal of eventually launching her own company, she moved on to become an early stage investor at Index Ventures in London. While there, she recognized that the women's healthcare market is incredibly underserved, and she started Maven, a digital clinic for women that connects patients with healthcare practitioners anywhere, anytime via the internet. Since she founded the company in 2015, Kate has raised nearly $100 million and now counts Reese Witherspoon, Natalie Portman, and Mindy Kaling among her investors. Plus, Maven was named the most innovative company in healthcare by Fast Company in 2020. Kate is amazing, and if you've ever dreamed of starting your own company, you're gonna love her story. And then stick around for the foam moment of the show. As you'll see in the interview with Kate, starting a business as a solo founder is an all-encompassing task, but you do not have to do it alone. You're not gonna be able to do it alone, in fact. You will need to get help from other people if you're gonna succeed. So I'm gonna give you some tips on how to get people to help you for free as you're working on your startup idea. And now onto the interview. One of the big reasons that I wanted to talk to Kate is that she was very early to the telemedicine industry and she was among the first of such companies. So in a world where so much is going digital, I wanted to ask Kate what she's learned over the years about how you can create real connections across screens.
0: Yeah, so I think one thing um, is that video appointments with clinicians, you know, particularly when someone's seeing a a patient face-to-face in in a virtual setting, you can still pick up on things like a patient blushing, a patient, you know, pausing. Um, You can actually still build a pretty solid connection. And so, you know, for remote work, it's why video meetings are so important, and we're not all just dialing into conference lines. Um, because I know that, you know, what I'm hearing from some teams and some friends is that the the the, the one long Zoom call, or you know, that people are on all day, gets really exhausting. Um, but at the same time, you're still connecting a little bit um when you can see someone else's face. So yeah, I think that's 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 just really important. And you know, obviously we were um one of the early telemedicine companies. We started in 2014 and um so yes, we have always thought that you can do a lot virtually and a lot um you know, even healthcare you can do that remotely.
1: You started your career as a journalist. Traveling around, working for The New Yorker, The Economist. Now you're the CEO of a company that's raised nearly $90 million. So, not an obvious transition, maybe, but you've said in the past that being an entrepreneur and being a journalist have a lot of things in common. So, I want you to unpack that for me.
0: When I was a journalist, uh, I often didn't get direction for a story, right? I had to go figure it out myself. And so, there was a lot of creating structure from a very unstructured um, environment. And Entrepreneurship is very much the same way. There's no direction on uh, really how to build a, a product in, in women's and family health. Um, we you know we have signals. We he- we hear from the market. We hear from our patients. We hear from our providers. But but really, it's about creating the structure from the, the chaos, finding the the story, the narrative, um, among all of the signals. And then that's really our strategy, right. As a business, as we kind of build for the future. And so, you know, I, I think that that's, that's very similar. The other thing that that's pretty similar is, um, with the way that I make Major decisions for the business, I, I often rely on a council of advisors, um, and so you know, obviously, I make a certain amount. I, I don't have time to rely on a council of advisors all the time, but when we're when we're doing when we're making a big strategic decision, you know, i want the board to weigh in, or I'll want some of our executives to weigh in, or I'll want um, you know some of our, our advisors to weigh in, and so that also helps me, you know, make decisions when I, I've never made a decision like the one in front of me before. And I think the same goes for journalism. You know, you're constantly talking to sources and and learning from them to kind of build the strategy, the story, the narrative.
1: Do you have a threshold when you know that you need to go externally for advice? Like how do you sort of know when that point comes along versus something you just want to handle yourself?
0: It's really when I haven't seen it before. So there's a certain amount where I've seen before and I feel totally confident and and I'll just I'll just answer it or, or figure it out. But, you know, as we get into new markets and, or we get into new patient populations, um, you know, Medicaid is an example. We had never worked with Medicaid patients before. And so I went on a listening tour, um, and I'm still on that listening tour where I'm talking to a lot of people who work with Medicaid populations, with that audience, to understand what are engagement patterns, what are user behavior patterns. And, um, and I'm learning a, a ton, and it's informing how we're thinking about products. You know, that would be an example of where I would kind of, you know, go on the listening tour and get advice, but obviously making a, a decision about how to negotiate a contract with, um, you know, an employer or, or, or marketing in the employer. We've, we've done that before, so we wouldn't need help doing that.
1: You're getting into this really critical part of entrepreneurship, which is that, you know, so many people think, well, you just have an idea and you go and build it. And it's so much more than that. And so much of what great entrepreneurs do is research and go out into the market and talk to people and find people who agree or disagree with them and gather data and then use that to make better and better decisions. Now, let's go back to the early days of Maven. Tell us about, first of all, where the kernel of the idea came from. And then sort of really concretely, what were the steps that you took to figure out sort of how to actually get the business started and, and and have the data you needed to be able to make some smart early decisions.
0: I was working in venture capital in London. I knew I was going to leave. I knew I was going to start something. I would already tried to start a few things that didn't work out. And there was the common thread between a lot of the ideas was uh, helping women or helping some kind of underserved community, um, and, and putting out a mission driven product that was making the world better. So, um, and so with Maven, what really, um, came up was I was looking at a lot of digital health companies and, uh, and my aha moment was when I started looking at, um, telemedicine and, and telemedicine companies, uh, a lot of the the users were disproportionately women um, because they were using telemedicine for their kids, for their families, for their pregnancies. Um, And yet none of the platforms had the core women's health providers on them like OBGYNs or um, nutritionists, physical therapists, midwives, doulas, lactation consultants, even mental health providers that specialize in women's unique needs. And I, I think you know, it was this one size fits all approach that um, I think hasn't served uh, women in the healthcare system at all, and so that was that was the aha moment. Which is, um, how do you verticalize? Uh, how do you verticalize and build a, a women's um, and family health platform? So, women's and children's health is a lot a lot of what we cover. Um, how do you do that, and then bring in a lot of the really interesting digital health technologies to make it a, a whole, um, you know, end-to-end experience? And so. We started with telemedicine because that was one of the big trends of the time, and uh, and still is. I think it's one of the most disruptive healthcare trends that we're seeing um, to bring healthcare outside of the clinic and into the home. And so, even though it's you know people have argued like uh, through the years, like is this good? Is this not? Does this drive more cost? Does it not? I think you know you talk to any. CEO of a major health system or a health plan, and they'll say the distributed power of telemedicine and the disruption that it's caused is, is you know tremendous. And so um, so really wanted to you know use that as one of our core features for our care delivery model. And so we built the, the largest kind of women's and family health telemedicine networks. So when we launched in April 2015, we were the only ones, that was our first claim, we were the only women's and family health telemedicine network. We had about 300 providers across 12 specialties and now we're the the largest there's others in the market now um we have 2000 providers across uh, 20 specialties and, you know, highly vetted. We only accept 35% of those who apply. So, um, so that was kind of some of the early days as telemedicine, but then, you know, we pulled in a lot of other, you know, interesting features to really, uh, bring the experience of starting a family, growing a family, um, you know, to, to the modern age. Um, sometimes particularly when I have my two kids still parts of it feel like it's stuck in the 1950s. We now have a reimbursement product. Um, we have, you know, Maven Wallet, we have breast milk shipping, we have, you know, even within our, within the experience and the platform, we have care advocates who act like concierges to help people navigate their benefits and their childcare. And so we've layered on a lot of different other features. Um, and so that it's just this one, you know, model that truly everything we do is catered and built for the woman and the family.
1: Okay, so you were a first time founder when you launched this business. And we all know that fundraising is hard all the time, um, even for companies that have raised lots of money. It's always difficult. But I imagine when you first got started, you heard lo- no a lot, right? No, sorry, for millions of different reasons. So tell me about sort of what was the number one no that you got when you were fundraising and how did you overcome that?
0: Number one, no, in the early days, were uh, women's health is a niche market. This is not a big enough market. And so, you know, I, I overcame that because uh, I was kind of like, well, sucks that you don't know how to read numbers, but I'll go get this from some other guy because <laughs> there's a lot of money in this market. Um, so that was, I mean, the, when you have like, when you're armed with facts and what someone says is just something that's wrong, you're kind of like, all right, whatever, next. Then, then we got no's around as, the, as then it became kind of clear to people, oh, this is a large category, maybe the largest um, in, in a three and a half trillion dollar market. Um, then we got into, oh, well, we, this bet that you're taking, we don't think that, you know, this is going to come to fruition or we don't think you'll ever work with health plans or we don't think that you'll ever drive the C-section rate down because no one's ever done it before. And I think that one of the things that we have going for us um, you know, on the innovation side, against us on the fundraising side, is this is a new market. No one had actually done a lot in this market because it was so underfunded, and so we there's a lot for us to do. And when people are like, "Well, it hasn't been done before," you're you're kind of like, "Well, you're you're right. That's the opportunity."
1: And you had been a VC, right? So it's not like you didn't know the game. So as you thought about. The I always call the VC a game of foes because the companies want to create FOMO. The investors have FOBO. They're waiting for a better option and so they don't want to move. They're, they're waiting for like the perfect deal to walk in the door a lot of times. So if, if you were sort of putting your your cap back on you, you understand how the game is played really well. How as an entrepreneur did you get people over the hump and create the foes to commit?
0: Um, I mean, it was like sheer numbers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell us, how many people did you meet with?
0: Uh, I mean, in the seed seed stage round, um, like hundred, like over a hundred, uh, series A, it was pretty big as well it Was maybe like 40 some, 30 to 40 something. I, I don't, you know, and obviously, you know, the, our last fund round was a handful. So that was great. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah. And, and so I think it was just, um, I, I basically at a certain point in each fundraise, stopped talking to people who either didn't know healthcare or weren't a woman, because if you didn't know healthcare, you didn't understand our market. And if you didn't, or a woman, you didn't understand, you know, you you didn't understand the user problem that we were solving. And so if you found oftentimes a lot of men who were, who didn't understand healthcare, it was like, you know, forget about it. And, and as an entrepreneur, you know, I think your natural bias is towards optimism. And so, you know you you'd have these conversations and, and and by the way actually there's lots of wonderful men who don't work in healthcare that wanted to invest um, but the whole thing is VC is by partnership so what kept happening was you would meet and, and oftentimes they were like dads themselves they were in their 30s 40s whatever you' they'd see the opportunity they they'd understand the problem and then, but then they'd bring it to their partnerships and the, and the partnerships were largely men. And so there was always detractors. Um, and so that was really what killed us all the time. And so, um, so yeah, so I think that at a certain point it was just finding that partnership or that, you know, that res- really well-respected VC that could drive things through a partnership uh, to get it across the line. And that's, that's what happened.
1: Good takeaway here for investors or other people who make decisions in groups is when everybody in the room looks the same, it can be hard to appreciate things that are outside of your experience. Tudo bem, meus queridos Homo Sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel Now, you just closed another round of funding, $45 million. Congratulations. And that closed in February. When I read about it, something stuck out for this fundraising, which I thought was kind of interesting and kind of cool, which is that among your investors were Reese Witherspoon, Natalie Portman, and Mindy Kaling. So I'm curious, you know, I wonder from your perspective, and obviously they're incredible people and very successful. And, you know, people who are successful in Hollywood, they get there because they're smart. You know, there's no in any field where somebody's at the top of their game. They're not just you know a pretty face. They're smart people. They're savvy and they're shrewd. But I'm curious, from your perspective, where is the value of having investors of uh, like like those three on your cap table?
0: All three of those investors are part of the founders of Times Up, um, and. Jess Lee, who's our board member from Sequoia, is one of the founders of All Raise. And so All Raise and Time's Up really built a strong partnership to try to just promote more gender equality at the top of industry. Um, And so I think that, uh, you know, they obviously they came in at our Series B um, and then we um, you know, we, they obviously, uh, came in again at our, our series C and, um, and so we, we, they were, you know, very kind to let me use their name in the press release, although that was like the headline of every fundraising <laughs> announcement article. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that as it's, it's great having them on, on the cap table and as investors, because as we continue to think about not only, you know, business growth, but also really thinking through some key advocacy issues that we care about, like, for instance, paid leave, um, then, you know, they're, they're amazing uh, champions of that. And, and so there's a lot of opportunity to potentially work together. And they're one of them, um, and myself may be talking about something right now, some more exciting stuff um, to come on that front.
1: Okay, watch this space. Uh, now, I, I, as I think about your sort of your business going forward, it's interesting. I was talking to my mom last week, and she had a doctor's appointment. And so she did it over Zoom. And my mom, who'd never used Zoom before a month ago, is now like the queen of Zoom. As are many of our parents, as are many people we know. And so it's kind of funny because you had a business that people thought was niche, which is now the only way to do it, really, except for, you know, sort of at least this moment sort of particular procedures, but everybody is moving into telemedicine. And so that's interesting because obviously you're, you were first to the game and in and, and your space. And so you have this sort of incumbent advantage, but now obviously everybody's com- your competitor in a way that they weren't before. So how do you think about the whole landscape as it evolves in the future?
0: It's incredibly energizing because we feel a little bit as a product team, how we felt five years ago before we launched, you know, we're launching into this new market where we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how certain trends are going to play out. And that's really where it feels like healthcare is again. Um, You know, in terms of even looking at our own space, you know, what is the future of the prenatal care model? How, how many of those appointments are going to be virtual? What are the different devices that you might use, um, you know, at home rather than going into the office. And so, um, and so, you know, I think that we're, we're we're really excited and energized particularly because we you know building a telemedicine platform is actually quite hard um i know there's some like you know telemedicine in the box products but you know if you really think about all of the edge cases around you know, scheduling, rescheduling, ordering prescriptions, being licensed in every state, ordering labs, having super high quality providers, tracking and all of the data and tracking that you need to put on all of the appointments, capturing patient data. I mean, that takes like years to do. So we have a a great head start there. And then really it's about what's additive to the whole model going forward and how is it going to be reimbursed? So those are um, some of the big things we're thinking about. I think um, the other, I mean, but I think what is going to shake out um, is the fact that there's going to be a lot of consolidation coming in healthcare. I mean, you have, you know, the health plans are are going to be making a lot of money off of the, the crisis. I mean, they're the big economic winners, whereas the health systems are obviously struggling a lot right now. And so it, it, it'll be interesting um, to see how all of that shakes out. And and I, and I do think, you know, for the consumer, the best thing is is not all of this consolidation, right? You don't want m- a monopoly industry like we're starting to see today. So um, at Maven, we will remain independent and uh, continue to grow because, um, because I think it's just really important for patient-centered healthcare to have Diverse players, um, you know, with varying goals for their products.
1: Now, as medicine goes online, not everybody is kind of adhering to the sort of highest standards. And there's been journalism around the fact that there are certain service providers out there, like in the male reproductive space, that, you know, they're not. Um, people are able to get prescriptions to things without necessarily um, having uh, a lot of proof that they need the drugs. And so I'm curious, as you think about this very landscape where there's, a, you know, some people are playing by the rules and others are, are a little bit looser, how do you make sure that you stay above the fray and that it, the fact that others aren't adhering to the rules um, doesn't sort of taint you
0: yeah, I think it's um it's that happens in every market, not just healthcare and I think it's just y- knowing that we're playing the long-term game. And so a lot of the moves that we're making are because we're playing the long-term game and we're not just looking for uh you know those short-term bursts of profit that might lead to an acquisition or might lead to, you know, pleasing a board because I, you know, I, I think with our board, at least our, our board as well understands that, you know, we're in this to truly build a better model of care for women's and family health. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's that balance, but it, it does all come back to roost in my opinion.
1: All right, Kate. So I read in an interview that the, the question that people ask you the most is, how do you do it all? You know, you have two kids, you're a CEO of a company and you noted, and I think this is a fair point and everybody should pay attention to this because you don't want to be asking this question is, you know, you have a husband who's also very hardworking, successful, great guy, and both of you change diapers and nobody asks him that question. So I don't want to ask you that question. I want to ask you a different question. So tell me what I should ask you today.
0: You could ask me, uh, what book I'm reading.
1: All right. Tell me what are you reading?
0: Uh, I just bought a book um, by David Kennedy. Uh, well, this is a little bit of a downer to end the podcast on, but um, I just bought a book by David Kennedy, on um, The Great Depression. So I think that there's a lot of parallels to how we're going to be living over the next few years and some of the things that we're seeing to that decade in American history. Um, my grandmother is 92 and has lived through many wars, um, but she still says that uh, the biggest change that occurred from a, just a, a everyday behavior point um, she thinks occurred because she lived through the Great Depression, um, not even necessarily World War II or Vietnam or whatnot. And so um, so anyway, so I, I wanted to really learn a lot more about it. And so I am reading that.
1: And when you finish, if you need to cleanse the palate with something a little bit more uplifting and practical, you can read Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. Kate Ryder, thanks for being here. Best of luck.
0: Thanks, Patrick.
1: FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show. And today, I wanna talk about how you can get people to help you with your startup or your startup idea without going broke. Recently, I've been reached out to by a number of people who are listeners to the show or maybe have read one of my books to ask me about how they can start a business Without a lot of money, because right now, of course, we're going through big changes in the economy and in society. People are losing their jobs, or people are realizing they might lose their jobs, and they're looking for the next big thing for them or the next small thing for them. It doesn't have to be that you're building a billion-dollar company after all. And so I wanted to give you some tips about how you can get going. And of course, getting going on your own is really tough. You may be good at one thing or two things or five things, but you're not gonna be good at everything you need to get going with a new business idea. So here's what I wanna tell you. Number one, think about what you do well And then think about what you don't do well, but where you need help. Then find people who can help you with your idea. Explain to them that you're getting started and that you don't have a lot of money right now. Now, you may be asking yourself, where will I find these people? Well, you'll find them in your community. You'll find them at former jobs. You'll find them at your university where you studied. You'll find them on LinkedIn. Don't be afraid to just reach out to people who could be a good fit for what you're trying to do. Don't be shy. Once you find these people, then you need to come up with an arrangement with them. Some people are just going to want to help you because they like you and that's okay. Don't be afraid to take help from others. You may have a chance to help them down the line and I bet you've helped lots of people for free in the past. So don't feel shy about letting people just kind of help you out for no reason but because they wanna be part of what you're doing. Now, for other people, you will want to offer some sort of payment, but it doesn't have to be in cash. Hey, sure, if you have the money and you want to pay somebody, go for it. But a lot of times, we can't afford to pay people for things that we need help with, like getting a website up or figuring out how to do a marketing campaign. And so what I recommend you do there is turn them into 10% entrepreneurs. As many of you know, I wrote a whole book on that subject. You can check that out, but you can also find lots of information about how you make somebody an advisor in your company. That's what I call it. You give them shares in your company in exchange for help. You can find that on my website at patrickmcginnis.com, and I actually have contracts you can download that you can use to set up this arrangement between an advisor and you. The important thing is to have a clear understanding of what exactly they're going to do and what you are going to give them in exchange for their work. Now, finally, If you don't have a company set up quite yet, you can also barter your talents. You can figure out something they need, they can find something that you need, and you can trade. And that's a great way to get started to see if you like working together, and then maybe in the future you can find a way to formalize that through some sort of advisory arrangement. And that's really important. You want to write things down, no matter if you're doing something where somebody's just helping you out for free or if you're getting into an actual business arrangement. You want to make sure that you write things down, that you have a clear understanding of who's going to be doing what, when, how, and for what. Because I can tell you from hard one experience, if you don't write things down, even if you're the best of friends, later on, you might remember it differently and that can lead to conflict. And it's just not worth it. You're starting a new business. You're trying to build something new. You want to get people on your team and you want to make your life less complicated. And if you don't write it down, things can get really complicated really fast. So for all of you who are thinking about starting a company or actually starting a company, feel free to reach out to me with questions or ideas and I'll be happy to write you back. Or you can also ask me a question that I can talk about on the FOMO moment of the show. You can get me at letsconnectatpatrickmcginnis.com. You can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis. So definitely reach out and I look forward to hearing from you. FOMO. And that's the end of another episode. If you have an idea, a story, or a question, you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J McGinnis, and at www.patrickmcGinnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcGinnis.com.